0: If we must explode, if we must combust, won't you wait, wait, wait,
1: wait, wait, for me? Welcome to the Anxiety Lab. I'm Sagar Bhatt. Very happy to be transmitting into your brain right now through some process. Neither of us understand, I bet. I don't want to presume for you. I don't understand it. But we can appreciate this miracle. I'm thrilled today to present this episode with Ayo Yatunde. I came across her work and reached out, and she was gracious enough to come on. Ayo is a community Dharma leader through Insight Meditation Society. She's a Zen student, chaplain, pastoral counselor, and professor. She's also co-editor of uh, the recent book, Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom. I would highly recommend this book if you're interested in any of these themes. Ayo not only shares her story, but as co-editor, she has invited other black Buddhist teachers to contribute incredibly moving and very personal essays covering a wide range of experiences. So please uh, check that out. You will be glad you did. Ayo is also the co-founder of The Center of Heart, which offers a variety of programming and counseling, and you could find her at thecenterofheart.org. So... Look, the intersection of Buddhism and race can be very complex, and, and we cover some stuff. And I, I just have to say, Aya was very warm and incredibly receptive to me and my thoughts. And I, I hope these kinds of conversations happen more often. If, if you have comments or thoughts of your own on this episode, as always, you can email me at theanxietylab at gmail.com or on Instagram, S-A-G-A-R-B-O-T. And that's all I have to say for now. Here's the Anxiety Lab with Ayo Yatunde. Please enjoy. Ayo, welcome. Um, thanks so much for being here. Thank you, Sagar. Thank you. I, I, I wanted to start by asking you, you, you grew up in Indiana in the 60s and 70s, and you grew up on, in the Methodist church, and eventually you, you found Zen. What, what was it about Zen that, that attracted you?
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I'll, I'll first say I didn't realize it was then when I first encountered it. So for example, uh, a friend gave me a copy of the Tao Te Ching and I read it, Stephen Mitchell's version of the Tao Te Ching, I read it and I was immediately at peace from the the first pages to the last, very short book in non-duality, right? And I didn't know that Taoism has been a part of of Zen. So I think reading that book, before I read my first book about Zen, I was already prepared to receive the non-duality of Zen. So that, yeah, immediately brought to peace. Then within the Zen context, at least expressed by Thich Nhat Hanh, Vietnamese Zen, um, I could, from the very first Meditation in the mm-hmm. book, Touching Peace, I could imagine myself as a mountain. I could imagine mm-hmm. myself as aspects of nature, feeling solid, mm-hmm. being water that was reflecting others. And I think the Tao prepared me to receive that meditation and visualization. And it was just on from there.
1: Huh. Yeah, because that that's one of the things that immediately struck me when I was reading your chapter from the book was like, yeah, this stuff must've resonated pretty hard because you talked about these meditation spaces, not being very diverse, mostly white, and your Mm -hmm. presence there was met with varying degrees of resistance. And, and yet you kept showing up. And, and, and to me that speaks to the power of this connection that you felt.
0: Yes. And I think it was, It was powerful because, one, I wasn't looking for it. I wasn't looking for it. It was gifted to me in two ways. I was turning 40 right after the bombing of the World Trade Center. And I had a party planned, and that incident just changed my orientation. I asked for friends not to give me gifts unless they were going to give me peace of mind. And so one of my friends gave me Thich Nhat Hanh's book, Touching Peace. Right around that time, I had applied to become uh, a volunteer with Zen Hospice Project in San Francisco, now called uh, Zen Caregiving Project. And the only reason I became a volunteer with that hospice is because, well, they invited me, but two, they had a year long training program and no other hospice at the time had that. So feeling inadequate about being a spiritual caregiver, I said, well, I will, I will definitely do the Zen program because they will offer me more than any other program will. Even though I know nothing about Buddhism, I know nothing about Zen, I know nothing about hospice care, I'll do that. And so I, my introduction to Zen was also about caring for the dying, which in in caring for the dying, then I'm in face, I am facing my own mortality, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's why I think Zen was so powerful for me is that I was able to face the true nature of myself with more courage than I had been facing it in the past.
1: Because you were so up, I mean, this was front and center, dying, decaying bodies.
0: 25 people every week.
1: Wow. Well. And, and I mean, I'm, I understand when I hear the word hospice, I'm like, okay, these are people that work in the field of death. And I, I don't know that I fully am familiar with what, what the day-to-day work is.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, so uh, when I was a volunteer, I was working in the uh, ward at Laguna Honda Hospital. There used to be a house uh, where there would be maybe five to seven uh, people living there. But I worked on the ward where there were about 25 people there. In addition to the 25 people there, there were usually about five volunteers who were also there, and and as well as social workers, nurses, and, and the doctor. So basically it was uh, providing community so that people weren't dying in isolation. We had parties. We sat with them to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about. Um, we learned how to practice mindfulness in the charnel ground, if you will. Yeah. Right, So, but mostly it was about providing community, being a part of community, hosting visitors, family and friends. And then when a person died, if we were there when they died, we were uh, uh, part of the ritual of uh, bathing the body, wrapping the body, engaging in whatever closing or death ritual they had asked for, and wow. then taking the body to the morgue.
1: I, I'm, I'm struggling to find anything, any other experience in life that, that even compares to that, because uh, you, you know, you're with the rawness. I mean, you, one goes to a funeral and everything is well-decorated, there are flowers. There's a lot of language around death that that serves to maybe move one's attention away from this reality of the charnel ground which sure. if if i understand it correctly is i, I think i read it in a i want to say payment children book and and it's just this for me what comes up is just this imagery of this literal ground of just dying decaying bodies in all sorts of forms and stages of decay you know where, where you know people are just decomposing and it's, mm-hmm. is, is the teaching to really just be with that stuff and to, or to understand that you, well, we are all in the charnel ground to some extent. Both. you got it right. Both. Right. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so, because I, I don't know that I've, I mean, I, I don't think I've come to that understanding. Um, I, I still am very much in denial about, being a dying, decaying body. I mean, I've, I've been studying Buddhism for a while and I, I've intellectually claimed to be at peace with impermanence and death. And yet it's odd that I get so pissed off when I have a headache. <laughs> and and I think there's something in there. Yeah,
0: yeah there is definitely something in there. Uh, and you're not alone. That's the other thing, Sagar. Mm-hmm. You're not alone. So there are two things that I would recommend for people who are open to... Uh, being with the reality of their of their bodies and consciousness. Uh, again, I go back to Thich Nhat Han's book, not touching peace, but uh, his other one, Healing and Transformation, or either no, it's Transformation and Healing, that's one, and then also the Five Remembrances. You know, just reciting those on on occasion. You know, I am of the nature. Uh, to die. I am of the nature to become ill. I am of the nature to grow old. I will be separated from everything that, uh, that I have a relationship to. And in the final analysis, the only thing I own is my karma.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: I think the combination of that book and that practice can help someone who's in denial <laughs> about the permanency of, of our bodies and our, and our states of consciousness uh, that can help ease us into the reality before the reality smacks us in the face.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, there's so much. I mean, I live in New York City and every day I'm seeing all different kinds of people. And, you know, there is a part of me that, yeah, turns away from people who are, you know, dealing with various disabilities and I don't know that there's no outward rejection as much as there's just this internal discomfort. And I don't necessarily, I don't see myself as them. I don't, I don't see myself as someone who's in, in connection with, with that experience mm-hmm. or that that's wound up in the same human condition that they are.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, I, I think my, I, I still want to believe that I'm separate and that I am special and all these things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well...
0: That's where you are. And eventually, right. you'll, be, eventually you'll be somewhere else. You, but, and what I'm saying is, and this is for all of us, uh, eventually we will have to let go of those delusions.
1: But aren't, I mean, some people are fortunate enough, like I'm you know, fortunate that I have access to these teachings, that I'm able to have time to meditate on this stuff. And, and I, so I could see this resistance and I could talk about it with someone like yourself on a podcast where I am you know, encountering your wisdom and, and using it as encouragement as I go forward and, and hopefully letting this go and maybe being at more. And, and you know it, it, it's on it's a gradient. I, you know, there, it's not like I am one day just at peace and one day, or, and right now I'm absolutely not at peace. There's, there's various moments of, of being more at peace than other moments and mm-hmm. if, I, if I could grow those moments. But, but you know, there's some people that never are able to come to terms with this delusion. They just, they die that way, yeah. yeah.
0: That's right. But they don't practice Buddhism. (laughs) (laughs) Seriously, you know, people say sometimes that this is a very morbid uh, uh, philosophy, a very morbid psychology, morbid, uh, we just focus on suffering. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, that's not true, but it does appear that way to outsiders, that that's all we focus on. And I think it's only when we get into the practice uh, and we are persistent With the practice, that we realize that it's actually a path to joy, to uh, right, okay, it's a path to joy to recognize the ways we suffer, the causes of the suffering, and the way through it.
1: Yeah, thank you, thank you for pointing that out. I, I, I think that's that's such an important thing to say. It it can get very bleak with words like death and suffering, and impermanence but yeah ultimately those things can be encountered in a way that taps you further taps one further into their experience of being alive and just the preciousness of this moment you know if if i'm in tune to all of these things i'm that much more just grateful that i'm able to be here talking Mm -hmm. to another human being you know through some miracle of a connection and and i think awe emerges as well along with joy and gratitude um so okay so my big you know one thing i talked about a few episodes ago is spiritual bypassing. I think that's such a interesting dynamic that happens with relation to the teachings, you know, where where they're used not in service of turning towards our pain or turning towards the truth, but but merely as ways to avoid our our problems, right? And I think spiritual bypassing deserves specific mention with regards to race. Um, you know, I, I was reading about your story and you talked about you know, you had experiences that You mentioned we're positive in the Bay Area, maybe in general, Uh, but but then when you went to Atlanta, it it got a little bit worse as far as the discrimination and there was a time you just various experiences and and obviously there's so many different subtle, just energetic things happening every moment, even though we can't necessarily describe them as an overt action or something someone said. It's it's just this energetic, these subtle ways that we reject each other in society Uh, alongside you know, more overt things like after you gave a Dharma talk, somebody patted you on the head, which uh, just Jesus Christ. Uh, But, but, and, and then someone stole an idea that you had for a workshop. And even after all of that, you, you decided to look inward. What, what can I learn about myself through all of this? Right. Is that an example of how we can maybe use these teachings in a way that you know, internalizes this as being our issue versus these incredibly unjust circumstances that I'm living in?
0: Right. I mean, sometimes we can. Sometimes we can. Mm -hmm. I just want to make one correction, Saga, just one connection. And that is, I don't don't know if the Sangha stole my idea, um, but they definitely used the idea uh, and invited someone else to offer it, but it didn't get offered in the end. After, okay. the rev- after it was revealed that I had been, after I had been invisibilized, right? And we were all like in, in a very awkward moment. But I just, so mm. just want to correct that. Yeah, thanks um, for clarifying. <laughs> thank you. So um, the path of Buddhism or the Buddhisms that I'm aware of, which includes Plum Village, so when I say Thich Nhat I'm talking about Plum Village.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Insight Meditation, Soto Zen, mm-hmm. and Shambhala to a degree. All of these Buddhisms are invitations to look at ourselves. Right? Look at yourself. Examine yourself. Take an inventory of yourself. Regardless of what's taking place, regardless of how you feel, whether you feel justified, wounded, hurt, whether you're on an ego trip, whether you've made a mistake, whether you're receiving a lot of applause. Mm. Look at yourself. Try to understand why you respond the way you respond, why you like what you like, and understand it very deeply. And try to understand it if you can, without judging yourself for who you are. So it's a compassion that you bring to this examination by refraining from judgment or trying to catch the judgment as it arises. Oh, I'm a jealous person, I shouldn't be jealous. I'm gonna now punish myself for being a jealous person, right? That's not not what we're trying to do through self-examination. So any practice that we engage in, be it meditation, be it uh, chanting, be it reciting sutras or suttas, whatever the practice is. If you find that you're practicing in a way that doesn't help you know yourself better, you're engaging in spiritual bypass, whether it's conscious or unconscious. And then when you realize, oh yeah, that's what I'm doing, and bring yourself back to a practice that allows you to know yourself more intimately.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And mm-hmm. so back, back to your question about understanding that I felt discriminated against repeatedly, but then making a choice to stay in an environment where I was being discriminated against. That came out of inspiration from uh, Pema Chodron, Shambhala mm-hmm. nun Pema Chodron, and her compassion teachings based on Lojong, and, um, yeah, based on the Lojong and uh, sending and receiving practice. And one of the slogans in that practice is, do the unexpected. So I said, okay, I have a habit of leaving places where I don't feel welcome. That's easy for me to do. So now, what would be the unexpected thing? What would be the unpredictable thing? It would be to stay. What's the opposite? It would be to stay. So stay as a practice and learn why this pisses you off so much. (laughs) (laughs) And so that's what I did. I don't intend to do that always, Sure. right? Because the practice is not an invitation to be a doormat, but an invitation to, into uh, intimate self-knowledge.
1: Right, so the quality that I'm picking up here is that your decision to stay was out of, an, it was an empowered decision. It wasn't one of, you know, you, you had, in some to some degree, reconciled that, yeah, this is mistreatment and it is unfair, yet, I'm going to use this as a way to build resilience and to, and to maybe get to know myself?
0: Well, I have to say, I didn't know, I didn't know what the outcome would be. I don't know if I was mm. that optimistic about what the outcome would be. I didn't know if I would be more resilient <laughs> in the end. But I think that was the result. I did feel stronger as the result.
1: Mm. So at least there was that clarity of intention uh, when you embarked on this, which... Because I've heard you talk about, you know, there being a version of this in various meditation and, and Buddhist spaces, a version of this that can be harmful. Uh, so we're not, in these cases, we're not talking about someone deciding themselves to use a hardship to turn inward, but, but rather when they're being told or instructed to by a person of power, uh, this can be a very harmful spiritual bypassing. When, for example, various practitioners of color who have faced oppression mm-hmm. and are dealing with racial trauma... They're being told, just just let it go. You know, race race is a construct. Self is a construct. The past is a construct. And, you know, that that's obviously a very easy place to slide into with Buddhism and, you know, with all these teachings about the need to look inward rather than outward. Right. Not just Buddhism, obviously, but also the whole pop self-help arena with regards to change yourself. Don't change the world. So... If these teachings aren't applied skillfully, they can be used to erase someone's experience. Oh,
0: absolutely. And that's not the objective. I would, I would argue that's not the objective. Um, because if we're going to talk about suffering and the causes of suffering, then we do that without discriminating against the causes of suffering, right? I don't right. think that you can hold both. I don't think you can say as a Buddhist practitioner... I'm interested in suffering, um, but I'm also not interested in the causes of the suffering. Yeah. Because we say that we're about the transformation of suffering. So if we're about the transformation of suffering, we need to know the causes. It's just like if you're a psychotherapist or a psychiatrist or a doctor or clinical social worker you have to make an assessment of what the problem is before you can offer the solution to the problem right yeah so some people say the buddha was like a doctor in that way
1: and do you think that these types of messages also or you know this type of a Misapplication of the teachings also represent a, a fundamental lack of understanding of, you know, as you said, it's like we're not, this is all a part of experience to to deny, you know, the, the these teachings of emptiness and no self aren't ways to deny experience. It's just that who we are and experience is, it's interconnected with everything else. It, it doesn't have a separate essence. You know, I, I might have this idea of myself as existing ex- separate from experience, separate from others yet ultimately we are in interconnection with each other. Mm-hmm. I am more than a self, a process and an arising that's, that's moment to moment. But that, that doesn't mean that these memories and experiences and the actions of others all of a sudden are meaningless.
0: Right, unless, unless you, you just insist on going there. For example, I mentioned Pema Chodron's compassion teachings, and I'm using her compassion card deck uh, currently. Okay. And there is a slogan there about um, considering all dharmas as uh, dreams, something like that. Um, right. There's an emphasis on understanding materiality is not solid, right? Even thoughts, our thoughts aren't solid, our experiences aren't solid. What we see is not solid. So um, so you can come to uh, what you think as reality as more like a dream. Mm-hmm. The problem with that, uh, as, as is the problem with almost any practice we come to, is the intention we bring to it and the conditioning we bring to it. So for example, it is within... The United States culture for whiteness, I put that in in quotation marks, for whiteness to deny the pain of people who aren't white. This happens uh, on a daily basis in hospitals when black and brown people say, I'm in pain, I need medication, I need some pain medication. And some doctors, nurses say, oh, it's not that hard oh, you're, you're mm-hmm. tougher than that. You're more resilient than that. There was a study done recently of hundreds of, of medical uh, school students who actually believe that black people have a thicker skin and thicker blood and therefore don't experience pain at the same levels. And the consequence of that has been medical neglect, right? Mm. So if you bring that kind of Mythology, I guess you can call it, ignorance, to the to the practice, and you want to embrace the teaching that all uh, experiences are but a dream. And someone says, "But my pain is real.
1: Mm-hmm. My
0: black pain is real. Living in this country is really painful." Then what do you expect the the response will be? It will be denial. Right, you're gonna deny that pain, and then the imposition of a particular belief system. Uh, not only is race a construct; it's not real, right? Therefore, your pain caused by racism or white supremacy isn't real. And now you keep harping on it, so now you're a bad Buddhist because didn't you see this this truth, this pith, right? Huh. You're not embracing the pith that all experience <clears throat> excuse me, that all experience is a dream. So now your pain has been denied, your experience has been denied, now you're a bad Buddhist, right? And how many of, of these kinds of messages can you take before you actually need to find a different sangha to be a part of? Mm. Yeah. This is an experience of 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 many people of color in in Buddhist sanghas in the United States.
1: Right. And it's your experience as well. And it
0: has been my experience. Mm. I'm, in, I'm in sanghas right now that I'm happy to be a part of um, because we've done our work. We keep doing our work. We do our white awareness work. We do our people of color work. We do our uh, collaborations across differences work. And I'm so happy to be a part of these sanghas in the Twin Cities of Minnesota.
1: I, I guess I'm going back to this analogy of Buddha as a doctor uh, because I, I, think it's also, I think there's also something to say about you know, when to prescribe which medicines. And I, I, I think there's, we could talk about the teachings that way. You know, yeah, maybe, maybe race as a construct is a useful thing to say to somebody who's holding on too tightly and is othering somebody based on you know, what their skin color is and is not holding the complexity of that person's humanness and instead mm-hmm. just reducing them to this, I guess, object. And, and maybe there's a way to enlighten that person of, yeah, you're holding on to to race in a very rigid way, and, and there's a lot you're doing in your mind. however, in in the cases you describe, race as a construct is being used to deny that people of color might have special needs, to deny you know their individual wounds, and that's I guess that that's that speaks to what is one of the most excruciating forms of pain, which is, I guess, erasure, correct? Right.
0: That's right. And also to deny the the privilege that white people have, um, it denies that too. And so then who are we to one another if we're so invested in denying uh, aspects of ourselves, our cultures, our histories, the wars that have been fought, the war that's being fought right now? the uh, pitting groups against other groups in a world Mm -hmm. of abundance. You know, um, I don't see that being very useful. And I also don't see how we create healthy sanghas in doing that. So we can talk about everything's a construct from a Buddhist perspective, right? Race, gender, human, -human. (laughs) non-human, but um, privilege, Power, the isms are not constructs. Those are the ways that people get together and impose uh, and abuse power on each other. That's real.
1: Yeah. And, you know, if we're talking about, I guess what's ironic is when somebody uses you know for example the teaching of no self to deny the experience of another person you know they're presuming a certain entitlement that there's a that, that there's a them that somehow achieved what they achieved because they because you know xyz they're that much better and and you know what what is driving that sense of entitlement but a delusional holding on to self Sure, causes and conditioning exist, but I've transcended my conditioning. Mm-hmm. I've overcome my conditioning. Why, why can't you? You know, so mm-hmm. so if I'm looking at this other person, well, you know, I grew up poor. I had all these things happen to me. I was able to just work my ass off and get to where I am. So that person should too. But but that whole argument presumes a misunderstanding of self. There is no you that exists outside of your conditioning. You know, the the you that you think is there. That's somehow this core essence of yourself is also of your conditioning. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. I mean that that's the way I see it.
0: Well these you know the the teach from my view, the teachings on self are, are very complicated complicated and complex. And maybe even not helpful in some ways. For example, I'm not sure if this is the case, but it could be the case that these, these teachings on no self come out of a critique of, of um, Vedic teachings, right? Where the self, as expressed with a capital S, the self is like uh, a god, that only the upper caste, the Ramanic caste, can embody. So the self resides in the body of the upper caste. And because the self, this God self, resides in the body of the upper caste, that entitles them to power over everybody else, right? Mm. So then the Buddha, Siddhartha becomes the Buddha, and then says perhaps, because we don't know, we weren't there, but says perhaps, there is no self. Well, who is he talking to? And what is he talking about? Is he talking to the Brahmanic caste that claims that this God self is embodied? And the Buddha says there is no self, meaning, I'm sorry, (laughs) I'm not buying it. You don't have that. You don't have that God self. Either we all have it or no one has it. But it's not by birth that you have this God self. And then you bring in the teachings of nobility. What does it really mean to be a noble person, right? It's through practice. It's not through birth. This is how I see it. Mm -hmm. But of course, these teachings have gone from India, and Sri Lanka, and Nepal, and, you know, then China, and then the teachings changed on no self there, Vietnam, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about, more about non-self elements, you got Soto Zen, uh, no independent self, you know, so what are we talking about? But mostly, why are we imposing this on people um, when we get angry? That's really, that, that happens, right? I'm frustrated with you. I'm angry with you, my dharma kin, and, about something you're saying about yourself. So I'm going to remind you that there is no self. So shut up. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> That's sometimes how it is, is used so, you know, as a way of shutting people down about their suffering.
1: Would you say that there's room for me in these cases to examine where I am, you know, I, I'm always noticing when I'm, I mean, the very thing I talked about as far as you know, presuming an entitlement over another person because I somehow have earned where I am and I'm, I exist outside, I do that. Is there a connection between what I'm seeing happening, what I see happening in society at large versus just the subtle ways that I feel better than people on a daily basis you know, like I, I, I was just getting coffee right before this interview, and I was in a little bit of a hurry. And this woman in front of me, her only crime was that she was in front of a guy who's in a hurry. And and but but like I I just, in my mind, I just tightened up a little bit and was like, I deserve to be at the counter, not her. And it, it was subtle, but it was there, right? Mm-hmm. And so, I want to say that there's something to say about connecting to what that, mal- that larger societal ma- malfunction is through this individual experience. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously the, the scale of it and the intensity is different. But, but for me, I, I want to think that that's a way in.
0: Oh, I think it most definitely is a way in. Mindfulness of whatever is arising is going to be a way in, right? That's what we mean when we say there are many Dharma gates. There are many ways. So recognizing mm-hmm. your agitation, just recognizing it, Recognizing the reasons for the agitation. Even for, from some people's perspectives, acting on it. As long as you are aware and then refrain from a habituated pattern of always thinking you are entitled to get what you want, when you want it, how you want it. That's a path. Yeah. Back to the no self conversation from a, from, um, a Theravada Insight meditation with a, I'm going to say, with a Western psychology lens. No self also is about uh, finding the ways that we act uh, with a narcissistic personality, right? And trying mm-hmm. to work uh, or back away from the delusion that we are entitled because we're so special, right? Because we're so powerful, um, always needing to have our ego gratified, all these ways that uh, we proliferate our personality um, to be first f- in the forefront, foremost, getting what I need first, and then if yeah. people uh, need something, they can get it after I get mine, right? That's that selfing that
1: we talk about in the insight tradition so Yeah, and it, it, when it's happening, it feels yeah. so right
0: because <laughs> it feels so good, right?
1: Yeah, I don't, I don't yeah. question it. It just feels, it feels true that I like an an example of you know how irrational it is. There was one time I was, I was at the airport and I was on standby and I got lucky. There was one first class, the last seat was first class, and and I was able to get that seat. And as soon as I got on the plane, you know, I. I Got the ticket through just complete luck. As soon as I got on the plane, I look at the people in coach. I'm like, ah, these fucking idiots. And and it, that just goes to show how. Quick, right. And, and like I, I didn't and I didn't doubt that feeling. It was just yeah. there. And and you know, as as mm-hmm. you talked about, it's the work is really becoming aware of these things. And as mm-hmm. we become aware, we we see how they're just complete distortions. Mm-hmm. You know. Right. It, it, it's fascinating.
0: Isn't it fascinating how you get a little bit yeah. of privilege and then. Uh, before you know it you you're actually convinced <laughs> you're convinced that you're something special and that you I mean all of us this is what yeah I'm yeah
1: the, it's like looking for whatever it can to latch onto whatever mm-hmm. stories whatever i can use within reality to create this narrative that i'm the best i will use yeah give me what i want give it to me now yeah all right <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So along those lines too, is it possible, because I heard you speak to, you know, sending out compassion, you know, not, not compassion to, well, there's various ways we can send out compassion, but one of the ways you send out compassion is to all kinds of people, even people who have oppressed. Mm -hmm. And so for me, when I, when I think about, well, if I'm capable of of behaving in this incredibly narcissistic way, I, I, that to me is a window into maybe feeling a little bit more kinship with other people who maybe previously I'm rejecting them. I'm rejecting them because they're, you know, they're causing harm or, you know, on a more maybe subtle level, they're, I'm rejecting them because they remind me of parts of me that I don't like. But when I open up to these tendencies in myself, I can begin to not condone behavior, but, but at least in terms of my attitude towards other people, feel a little bit more compassion and connectedness with.
0: I hope so. I hope that's true. Um, You're making me think about something that I'm working on. If I can share it, I hope I hope Jeez. you're right. So, the George Floyd torture and murder mm-hmm. by police officer by police officer and his police officer accomplices, um, the trial, it's trial time, right? And so, in this effort to cultivate compassion across our differences. Uh, I, I mentioned the Twin Cities Dharma communities that I'm a part of. We are working together uh, to offer to Buddhist communities, um, I guess you can say, a lens on the trials uh, as a way of uh, providing a Buddhist analysis uh, and legal analysis and um, okay, compassionate worldview and anti-racist project uh, that we're calling Buddhist Justice Reporter, the George Floyd Trials. And um, these two words, Buddhist and justice, are not two words that we typically see together, right? Mm. Um, Our compassion collectively, I would say, our compassion collectively in the United States has not been turned towards the plight of unarmed black people as it relates to the police, policing, uh, the criminal justice system, and uh, mass incarceration. But I think the power of compassion, uh, bearing witness, telling the truth, uh, thinking about uh, police reform, as well as restorative justice can actually be met through the power of compassion if Buddhist practitioners in the States are willing to harness that power. Mm-hmm. And so we're hoping that through this project that we can do exactly, Sagar, what you're talking about, actually make compassionate action result in a positive change in the society, not just for ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Buddhist Peace Fellowship is another organization that that does this kind of work. The thing is, we've been focused uh, largely on our own liberation, right? Individual liberation. Yeah. Right. But not collective liberation from the things that cause uh, racialized harm. And now's the time. All the eyes, the world's eyes are on this trial. People believe, (laughs) people believe, some people believe the police will be uh, found guilty of murder. Many people believe the police will not be found guilty of murder. And of course, people are on edge about what's going to happen in the aftermath of this trial. So as Buddhist practitioners, we are providing a space weekly for uh, uh, meditation and conversation about what this trial means. Also, uh, to envision, to use our moral imagination about how to construct a world that we want to live in rather than destruct the world that we live in as the only options, mm-hmm. right? Some mm-hmm. things do need to be destroyed, but we are Buddhist practitioners, so violence is not the path that we're talking about. We're talking about something constructive.
1: Mm-hmm. So, in terms of cultivating this compassion, uh, I'd love to hear more about just what this practice actually looks like in your mm-hmm. groups.
0: Yeah. So, in the loving kindness practice,
1: which is also a
0: compassion practice, I say, in the loving kindness practice, we we begin with a visualization. Typically, we begin with a visualization on ourselves. You know, uh, cultivating loving kindness for ourselves. But then it's sort of tiered, layered, where we go from imagining loving kindness to our, for, for ourselves to loving kindness that is beyond a particularity or beyond mm. a particular person. That it is our heart and our mind are connected, bodhicitta, uh, it's vast, that everything in existence, falls within the field of loving kindness that we are creating. Everything and everyone, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what potential they have to do harm, that doesn't mean we're a doormat. What it means is we take on the responsibility or for some, the vow to act in a way that is most conducive to that person's well-being. Mm-hmm. Right, so that doesn't mean that they get what they want. Not we're not feeding narcissism, right? Mm-hmm. If I get what I want from you, then I know that you love me. No, <laughs> what is most conducive to your well-being? That's what I'm interested in offering.
1: Thank you for detailing that. So, in terms of offering that, uh, you know, with regard specifically to sending compassion to everything and everyone, regardless of what they've done, as you said, would you say that not everyone would be resourced enough to do that? You know, depending on, you know, I, I listen to someone like yourself and you obviously have extensive training and you have the resources to hold compassion for others in a way that other parts of you still feel safe. But I imagine there's others out there who their wounds are too raw and I'm wondering if for them, the work is first to be with their own pain and direct compassion inward, and mm-hmm. then we can talk about sending compassion to everything and everyone, regardless of what they've done. Right?
0: Yes, right. And so I'm so glad you mentioned that, because I think Buddhist practices are um, they can be progressive, um, it's <laughs> lifelong to get somewhere Mm. lifelong, but it's worth it. It's worth it. Uh, But ultimately, I see Buddhist practices as a resource. So if we come into, for example, when I started in hospice, I was also beginning a meditation practice at the same time. And in meditation, so we meditated as a group, invariably, I would cry. I wasn't heaving. But tears would flow. And I asked, I remember asking, is this normal when one meditates that they cry? And they said, no, you should look into that. Mm. And so I looked into that. And what I learned is that I had grief from, I had been carrying decades of grief, unresolved grief. It was that unresolved grief that led me to want to do Hospice yeah. work. But I didn't realize how deep it was. But Buddhism then, Buddhist practices became a resource for me facing my unresolved grief in a very, you know, strong way in hospice. So when people come to practice, there's no expectation that they come with any kind of, any particular ways of being resourced. Mm. I think that's important to say. You come as you are. We accept you as you are. And hopefully we're creating a container for people to say, this is how I am. This is how I came to be. This is what I carry. And hopefully what we offer through practice is a resource for uh, them and for us as a community to practice that resilience that we mm. talked about, to become resilient, to come, become remarkably relationally resilient uh, is my hope.
1: Mm. Yeah. I mean, it, it's so apparent how important community is in all of this. Uh, just, yeah, the difficult work of building a remarkable resilience. Uh, as you said, uh, it seems like the support of a sangha is, would be of profound benefit. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I guess that's what I, where I wanted to go next with regards to this remarkable quality. And, and one of the things you talk about in your book is what it means to be a bodhisattva, which you define as somebody who puts the awakening of others before mm-hmm. their own. And what struck me about this, not, not just with your story, but with you know several black Buddhist teachers that, that I've heard from, along with some of the accounts in your book, is despite enduring such hardship this idea of being a bodhisattva and, and working towards the well-being of others remains the central tenet. And, and that it, – it's a level of courage and resilience that, you know, I haven't had to personally embody in my life. It, it, I, I read about it and I'm, I'm inspired that, that people are doing this level of work. Oh. And it, it also speaks to the sober reality of pain and carrying wounds – You know, I I personally have my own pain and wounds, which are very different from yours, and I'm not trying to make any comparisons. But just with regards to my own process, even with what I've suffered, there are times when I feel, whether I'm right or wrong, that I've suffered an an unjust amount. And the sober reality is... It, is that the work is still for me to turn towards this stuff and process it and make sure I don't pass this pain on to others? No one's going to do it for me. There's no prize waiting for me. It, it, it's completely unglamorous. It sucks. There's no alternate life waiting for me where these wounds didn't happen, and and so I just, I just can't help but to think how incredibly noble it is to read some of these accounts in your book and you know despite everything they've gone through to still act in the service of others. It's just incredibly noble as I already said um I don't so that was a very long winded uh, I don't even know if that was a question um.
0: <laughs> that's okay I am turning yeah i I was turning because I just wanted to look at something real quick, which is oh please no, I got it um you mentioned black Buddhist teachers in the book. I don't know. Sagar, if you had a chance to check out any of the Black and Buddhist Summit. Did you check out any? Did you happen to see any of that? Okay. So your listeners can probably still find it online. It was just a couple of weeks ago where we had more than 20 African-descended Black Buddhist leaders across traditions from different countries come together on different topics from being Black and Buddhist and masculine to... um, we talked about trauma. We talked about oppression and justice. We talked about the diaspora. I mean, just a variety of things. And one of the interviews was with uh, Jarvis J. Masters, uh, who's been on death row for a few decades in San Quentin. He's a Buddhist practitioner. And he talks about his teacher... talks about his teacher... Um, in finding freedom, the book Finding Freedom, he talks about his teacher telling him that there are people worse off than you are. There are people worse off than you are, um, which, you know, part of the teachings also uh, have to do with not not uh, wallowing in self pity, regardless of your circumstances. But the thing is, uh, is it helpful to compare our pain to another's? I think you answered that question. Not really. What we feel is what we feel, right? We don't share the same body. Uh, We talk about no separation, but we really don't share the same body. Um, It's really important in our sanghas to recognize that our our experience of our pain is particular, though we do share commonalities, right? Um, If any of us have gone without food, we know what it feels like to to be hungry, right? Mm -hmm. We know that. But yeah, this whole thing, it's a, (laughs) it's complex and you bring up the complexities. It's worth the, as Ruth King, who was Ruth King, a Buddhist uh, teacher in the insight tradition and author of the book, Mindful of Race, founder of the Institute, Mindful of Race Institute, wrote in her chapter and talked about in the summit that wholeness is no trifling matter. And yeah, basically it's a, it's lifelong, this work that we're doing. Buddhist practices are lifelong. If you, if you expect to experience enlightenment uh, <laughs> your first sit, maybe you'll experience it. But the transformation of our grasping the transformation of our clinging, the transformation of our greed, hatred and delusion, you know, these uh, uh, beginningless karmas and so on that we that we talk about is lifelong because mm-hmm. living as we live, we encounter many instances of being wounded, whether it's our nar- you know, n- narcissistic wounding taking place, maybe it's physical wounding um but that's what it means to be human. It's not easy to be human. And so to be able to go into a sangha, a healthy sangha, and sit, be seen, be heard, be supported, it's a beautiful thing. And it encourages us and empowers us to be out in the world, in a diverse world, because we hopefully have been in a diverse sangha Though we know not all sanghas are. But when we can sit in a diverse diverse sangha, and listen to people without interruption, practice compassion, deep listening, and then take that practice out into the world, that is a gift for everyone. Oh, and now now I remember a point that you were making, Sagar, I remember a point about being a bodhisattva, taking on the bodhisattva path as African-descended teachers. I think, I think if any of us know something about the history of being black in the United States, we can list a number of bodhisattvas. Like the, the list is long. When I think about Spring Washam, who is also a, a black Buddhist teacher in the inside tradition, she opened up the Black and Buddhist Summit with um, her uh, thoughts and teachings around Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad crew. Harriet Tubman and the Underground Railroad crew are bodhisattvas for her, right? Sojourner Truth, Frederick Douglass, these people are bodhisattvas. Uh, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, bodhisattvas. So putting putting yourself, I'm sorry, putting others before you, it's actually not that hard to do when you've been, I think, when you've been practicing loving kindness and compassion, equanimity, and sympathetic joy, you know, these heavenly abodes, when you practice those over time, uh what you're doing is practicing selflessness, not no self, but selflessness, right? Selflessness is part and parcel of what it means to be on the bodhisattva path you're not so focused on getting your needs met, mm-hmm. but you're really thinking about the, co- the whole, the collective. And that's just part and parcel of what it means to be African descended. We, are, we come from a collective mindset. It's just been transmitted down over the centuries.
1: Mm. Yeah, thanks for answering that question. So my mind is going to... uh, There was a passage from your book that I really loved, and I was reminded of it as you were sharing. Let me see if I can find it here. Okay, yeah. So this is by Dawa Tarchin Phillips. It is deep and vulnerable work, and there are no shortcuts. You cannot simply wish your wounds away. An amputated heart and mind do not reconcile through further separation but through the realization of non-duality and the full reintegration of all aspects of itself. Can we be courageous enough to admit to ourselves the experience of amputation? Can we be courageous enough to admit to ourselves the existence of our wounds of insignificance and belonging? Can we be courageous enough to venture on a journey of rediscovering and redeveloping the relationship with ourselves, with humanity, and with the planet, until we experience those relationships as ones of love, respect, significance, and belonging. So when you were giving that last answer in terms of putting the needs of others above our own, one of those qualities, you know, to me is, is cultivating that warrior spirit of coming to terms with our own wounds. Mm-hmm. And I guess for those who've suffered more intense hardships that work requires more support and courage. And and I guess that was the point slash question I was trying to make earlier. I I don't know that I got it out correctly. And so I'm thinking, you know, regardless of someone's wounds, and I I just, this is my understanding, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Regardless, one second, let me just gather my thoughts here. Okay. Okay, I, I guess what I'm saying is however unjust and unique someone's suffering seems, it, it's no less true that the path to liberation still involves integrating that suffering.
0: Yes, and you know, again, back to Ruth's point, Ruth King's point, wholeness is no trifling matter. Uh, Tony K. Bombara, that's who she's borrowing that phrase from. Um, it is not... Instantaneous, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's why it takes courage. Dawa is asking, do we have the courage to accept our vulnerability? How we've been broken up and torn apart. Can we accept that? And what does it take to accept that? So then we bring back the, the teachings on no self again. If we are deeply, deeply wounded in the psyche in terms of our personality, such that we have personality a narcissistic personality disorder, right that that type of wounding, we will never accept uh, vulnerability, never. And I think we have seen we've seen the difference between a narcissistic response to a pandemic and a compassionate, empathetic response to a pandemic, right? This is a pandemic where, I don't know, tens of millions, if not over a hundred million people have been infected and millions of people have died tragic deaths and many more will be infected and many more will die because we don't right now have an enough vaccine to cover the world, right? Mm-hmm. The response from a narcissistic point of view was, we are uh, invulnerable to this disease, such that we won't even wear a mask. We will continue having super spreader events. We will keep businesses open. We will never close. This will not defeat us. Mm-hmm. Okay so that was a narcissistic response to to being vulnerable. The compassionate empathetic response was we've got to come together to eradicate this pandemic. We've got to come together to do it. We are all impacted and we all can play a part, but we've got to come together to do it and stop fighting each other. Right? So This is, uh, these are concerns in Buddhism, how our personality impacts uh, our willingness to to admit our vulnerability, our courage to do the work towards wholeness. And can we, as Buddhist practitioners, in sanghas in particular, even present ourselves as whole? so that people can see what wholeness is like and be inspired by that. And I think one way to do that is to refrain from judging people for the wounds that they have, Mm. because
1: we all have them. I guess I want to believe that turning towards our wounds is turning towards reality, you know, being in opposition to our wounds, hardening around them is being at odds with life itself. And so, so I, you know, unless we've integrated our wounds, we 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 haven't fully embodied the the full vulnerability of, of what it means to be alive, mm-hmm. and and just that tenderness. And and in that tenderness is, you know, you talked about payment children. I, I heard her. I guess, articulate the qualities of bodhicitta. And, and so in that tenderness is deep sadness, but ultimately that's existing part and parcel with you know, this open heart and where we can meet other people in this tenderness and vulnerability. And that's where ultimate healing can happen. Mm-hmm. And so it, I guess if we're pushing away our own wounds, we, we're more likely to push away each other. Oh, no doubt about that. There's no
0: doubt about that. We project, we project our own uh, self-rejection onto others. You know, it's interesting, and it's just part of being human, I guess. When a flower wilts, we don't get mad at the flower and say, You shouldn't be wilting, you know? Yeah. (laughs) When uh, the seasons change and the leaves fall from the tree, we don't get mad at the tree and say, You should have your your leaves, should stay on the branches and stay green forever, right? Because we know that's not the nature of flowers, that's not the nature of the seasons. Nor is it the nature of trees. We've t- fooled ourselves into thinking that because we have a prefrontal cortex, I guess, you know, because we have this, you know, three part brain, evolved brain, that our nature
1: is different. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. And it's not. So, yeah, you, you touched on this a little bit, but I, I, I'd love to hear more about, you know, how, how can we reconcile this? You know, the importance of truly being with our own wounds and not requiring the world to be a certain way for us to have this inherent sense of goodness and self-worth. So much of, you know, I guess what this process is in the service of is, is reclaiming this, this inherent goodness. How, how, how would one reconcile that with the need to overhaul external systems of oppression and injustice? Mm-hmm. You know, some, some would say these are two contradictory ideas, Right. I can
0: say a few things. One, uh, in Black and Buddhist, uh, quite a few of the uh, contributors talk about trauma, right? Talk about trauma, living with trauma, uh, recognizing trauma, transforming trauma and so on. I'm also thinking about a retreat. I attended a people of color retreat and when we broke up into small groups to determine you know, who was interested in what and pursuing what activities, I left that uh, gathering with a sense that people were, at that particular retreat, there were more people interested in uh, uh, engaging in healing for themselves mm. than engaging in the trauma-inducing work of uh, changing society and felt like first things first. I need to be healed before I enter or re-enter into you know that fray sometimes we don't have the uh the privilege of making the decision about what we're going to participate in uh and when we're going to participate in it because the uh the violence is is right there and our survival instinct instinct kicks in and we and we ch- And we decide that we're going to attempt to survive and heal later. So over these past five years, it's been, and I'm just going to limit it to the the United States, these past five years have been extremely difficult for a lot of people. And racism and white supremacy has been expressed collectively in ways that many of us have never seen before uh, inspired and empowered from the t- the highest level of government in our country right. and we're still living in a situation where uh The previous president has not conceded the loss, Mm -hmm. thereby inspiring uh, his followers and many conspiracy theorists to remain in um, a different, quote unquote, reality, an alternative universe. So this is the situation we're living with in the United States right now. how can we as Buddhist practitioners and lovers of the truth regardless? <laughs> okay? I love that term. Lovers of the truth, atheists, agnostic, Catholic, Jewish, Muslim, Sufi, whatever, right? Yeah. Hindu, What? lovers of the truth. How can lovers of the truth come together across our differences for the well-being of all of us across our differences and be like a family that honors the truth. Truth Truth-telling, truth-seeing, truth-supporting. Because if we don't do that work, if we don't do that work across our differences, uh, we're in for more trouble than we're already in. Because right, well, I don't need to say any more than that. This is an unusual situation where we've got many people in this country who don't believe, who don't believe that their candidate lost and are willing yeah. and are willing to fight physically fight and wage war on the branches of government in order to perpetuate the myth that their candidate won we've I don't think we've seen anything like this before in the history of this country so we have to make the decisions And do I need to take back to your question? (laughs) I've got to prioritize. We have to prioritize. Healing wounds, healing my wounds first, then getting out there, getting out there while trying to heal the wounds, going back and forth between uh, uh, dangerous situations and then coming back for healing. I want to bring in uh, Henry Nowen, a Catholic uh, theologian who wrote this fabulous book that I think is still part of uh, uh, chaplain culture, the Mm -hmm. the wounded healer, Mm. right? The wounded healer. All of us are wounded. All of us have some capacity for healing. Many of us have the capacity for being a healing presence despite our wounds. We don't have to be perfect. We don't have to be healed in every aspect. But we all have something to offer. And are we willing to offer it? And that's what I hope, that's what I hope we'll do. (laughs) Did that answer anything that was on your mind or did I just go off on a tangent? No,
1: I, I'm I'm just listening and being thankful that I'm getting to hear this live. I, I, I at this point, I've, I think I've taken up more of your time than I originally claimed I would. Uh, I'm happy to Say goodbye now if, if there's nothing else uh, you'd like to add. I d-
0: just gratitude. Gratitude for your work. Really, this is This is a manifestation. What you're doing right now, in my view, is a manifestation of how we can bring our gifts and our care for one another using the technologies that we have today to reach out to people far and wide, people who don't even know you, right? And hopefully they'll hear something that somebody said at some point and they say to themselves, ah, I need to focus on that. Or ah, I can utilize that. Or ah, I can reach out too, right? We need to find ways to reach out and connect. So I'm very grateful to you for this. Look at what we're doing. I don't even know you. And you don't know me, but look at this meaningful conversation we're having with one another. Thank you.
1: I deserve a lot of credit. Yes, thank you. Uh, Now, listen, in all sincerity, uh, the pleasure and gratitude are mine. Thank you for sharing your story and the story of others in your book and, and your willingness to just come here and have a conversation with a complete stranger.
0: Thank you, Sagar. Thank you. Take good care of yourself, okay?
1: That was Ayo Yatunde. Can't thank Ayo enough for coming on and sharing some of her story, offering her wisdom and compassion. A couple things she mentioned that I wanted to underline. If you wanna donate or find out more about the work she's doing with the Buddhist Justice Reporter and the George Floyd trial, you could find that at commongroundmeditation.org slash about slash supporting the center. That link will be uh, in the episode description as well. Io can also be found at centerofheart.org. You can contact her there, as I mentioned before. And lastly, yeah, we, I mean, we barely scratch the surface on some of these themes. I, I think there's so much more to say. And if you'd like to learn more, uh, her book, Black and Buddhist, What Buddhism Can Teach Us About Race, Resilience, Transformation, and Freedom. Uh, if you want to learn more, that, that, that's a great place to start. And uh, thank you again to Io. All right, we're coming up towards the end here, as we usually do. This is uh, a longer episode than usual. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I have enjoyed the conversation. And what else? That's it. Rate and review. uh, Please, it helps me. Uh, I will keep asking. I'm sorry. And if you have anything to say to me, if you have feedback, comments, I always like hearing Whatever you write in, uh, theanxietylab at gmail.com or S-A-G-A-R-B-O-T on Instagram. Let me know you're out there. Thank you so much and be well.